So we are at the end of this series, and uh, I'm really happy to, to be back in time to be part of the series. I remember three years ago we went to America, and uh, the startup team, as the leadership was then, decided to preach through Colossians, and I missed the entire book, and I was gutted because I wanted to be part of that. I love Colossians. And this time, as elders, we decided, oh, let's do Philippians during this time frame. And I thought, oh, no, I love Philippians. And it's worked out that I get to do one little bit, one-eighth of it. So I'm really happy about that. In fact, there are two specific reasons. Now that we're back and I'm looking at the passage and I'm thinking about the message, there are two specific reasons that I am super thankful to be able to speak, not just in the Philippians series, but on this specific passage. Okay, and I'll tell you what those reasons are in just a second. Um, Let me just remind you, uh, it's been a a long week, a long series. Let me just remind you of the context, okay? What's going on? This is a thank you letter written by Paul to this church in Philippi. Paul was in prison, so he was a missionary. He was traveling and spreading the gospel, ended up in prison. He's in Rome, in this prison cell, and he's writing to a church in a place called Macedonia, we would think of it more as northern Greece, but, but this church had supported him and helped him. In fact, they'd sent one of their leaders to, to kind of help him and encourage him. It'd be kind of like us saying, uh, let's send Andy Cordell to Hong Kong for a few weeks to encourage so-and-so. Uh, you know, just that, that kind of thing. They sent someone that was significant to them to be a blessing to him, and while that person was there, he got ill, so ill he almost died, and they heard about it, so they were concerned. And so it's, it's just a very real letter. Paul's writing, sending this letter with the guy, Epaphroditus, who was ill but is now better, and they're going to be delighted to see Epaphroditus, and, and Paul sends this thank you letter with Epaphroditus back to Philippi. And so what he's doing is saying thank you to them. And uh, if you remember way back at the start of the series, when Andy launched it, he uh, pointed out to us this theme at the beginning of partnership. I don't know if you remember that. This idea not just of attending church together, but actually working together, that there is a real blessing when you work side by side with somebody He used the example of quarter to three on a a Sunday afternoon, kind of being a part of organizing this room and getting ready for church, and and the kind of the special bonds that form through being partners together in work. And that's how Philippians begins, and interestingly, that's how Philippians ends. It's technically, we call it the letter frame, but it's kind of the beginning and the end. The bookends of Philippians are on this idea or this theme of partnership. In between, Paul is, is really encouraging them. He's really wanting them to, to press on. And he talks about them uh, in the end of chapter 1, gives his main idea uh, of, of being one spirit, one mind, and, and of striving together for the gospel. And so in chapter 2, maybe you remember chapter 2, where it talks about humility, the humility of Christ. Mike spoke about that. Then Fraser was here from Swindon. And Fraser talked about the examples of these other guys as well, and this humility that unites believers together. And then in chapter 3, it talks about pressing on. And uh, was that Nathan and then Andy, I think, uh, looking at running the race and striving and keeping on going that we're called to something. We're not just kind of sitting here in this world doing nothing, but we're part of something. And then last week, Mike took us to the first part of chapter four and that kind of summary of those themes, but with some real specifics in terms of rejoicing in the Lord and these two women that needed to work things out and so on. 
And so we come to the end of the book, the end of the letter, and we've got just a few verses left, and he's going to come back to this theme of partnership. But I want to read to you beyond that, just the final, final little bit, the last three verses from verse 21. So if you have one of the church Bibles, it's page 982, Philippians chapter 4, page 982. It's a little heading. It says, final greetings. So from verses 21 to 23, I don't want us to miss these verses. We're going to focus on the bit before. But these, these last three verses, he, he writes this, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. A saint is a, a Christian. Okay? Don't think Catholic saint or anything weird like that. He, he means uh, a Christian. Greet all the believers. Every Christian, they're a set-apart person. Greet them in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Actually, those, those three verses at first glance look like they don't really say anything, but we could have taken an extra week on just those three verses, thinking about saints, thinking about the value of the greetings, thinking about why he ends with a focus on grace and who or what that is. But I want us just to notice one thing here. He mentions Caesar's household, and that just seems like an incidental little historical comment, doesn't it? But think about it from the Philippian perspective. Philippi was a colony of Rome. The people who lived there kind of had the rights of people who lived in Rome. And so what that meant was, as you traveled around Philippi, everything you did was under the emblem of Caesar. When you did business, you traded with coins that had the insignia of Caesar. When you were educated, it was kind of under Caesar. Where Everything was under Caesar, the language, the trade language. It was all kind of Caesar controlled because Caesar, the emperor, was in charge of the empire. And so if you grew up and lived in Philippi, no matter how far you traveled on business, you would have ended up somewhere probably within the Roman Empire. Now, what's the significance of that? I, I suppose from a Christian perspective, that could be just a little bit depressing, right? Here's a little gathering of Christians, just a small community. It's, it's a, a few people that have known Jesus for just a few years, and you're in the midst of this massive thing called the Roman Empire. And it's very easy when you're just a little group of Christians in kind of nowhere to think that the big thing is this world system that's gathered around, that's in charge of everything, that controls everything, the, the laws and the, uh, you know, the police force. Everything is kind of Roman. And it's easy to feel small and insignificant and to think, oh, it doesn't matter where we go or what we do, we're under the fluttering banner of Caesar. It's his world. Actually, that's not true, is it? You see, the reality for them and the reality for us is that we're not just a little group of people in nowhere surrounded by a great system. It feels like that. It feels like we're part of this world system that, if you notice, is absolutely set against everything that God says is true. It's constantly undermining the truths of Scripture. It's constantly making it awkward and difficult to be a follower of Jesus. And it would be easy for us, even without a Roman Empire, to feel like, oh, just us, just a little group of believers, just kind of incidental to the big thing that's going on. But the reality is that everywhere we go, no matter how far we travel, 
We are under not the fluttering emblem of the emperor of this world. We're under the fluttering leaves that were created by the God of the cosmos. Everywhere we go, we are under beautiful skies that were created by the one who is actually in charge. And the big news in this world is not the enemy of God, it's God. And so Paul's writing to the Philippians, and he just happens to drop in there. Here I am in prison in Rome, and by the way, there are saints, believers in Jesus, even in Caesar's household. How cool is that? Because actually Caesar's not in charge. God is. And we could travel to America. We could travel to Asia. We could travel to Africa. We could travel all over this world. And we would discover little pockets of believers, just like this one, who are gathering together publicly or secretly because Jesus is in charge. And the big thing that's happening is the church. It's the rescuing of people out of this world and bringing them into relationship with Jesus. And here's just this little two-word phrase, Caesar's household. And I think for the Philippians, it would have made their hearts leap. Really? There's there's believers in Caesar's household? Wow, we're part of something. And you know what? We're part of something. We're part of what God is doing in this world. And we can be fearful and we can feel insignificant and we can get discouraged by the things that we see. But actually, we're part of the biggest thing that has ever happened. It's the work of God to transform individuals and bring them together into a community called the Bride of Christ. That's amazing. Now, I said I'd tell you that that the reasons why I'm excited to preach this passage, okay? So let me tell you them now. This passage that we're going to look at from verses 10 to 20 are about partnership. And I suppose, in a sense, partnership just seems like, a, eh, what's that kind of a word? But, but what it's talking about, like Andy said at the beginning of the series, is it's talking about the privilege of working side by side with people. For the past seven weeks, Melanie and I and the children have been visiting churches and, and visiting partners for our ministry, people that pray for us, people that in some cases support us financially. And so we've been kind of swimming in the world of partnership. We've been praying about partnership. We've been having conversations about partnership. And so in light of that, to then come back and go, oh, look, I get to preach a passage about partnership. That made me excited. I thought, wow, this is great. What a perfect timing. And what's more, as Paul writes to the Philippians, I think you'll notice this, he never rebukes them, he never criticizes them, he never has a go at them, he doesn't drop a guilt bomb on them, he's going to talk about money, he's going to talk about partnership, he's going to talk about releasing resources and so on, but he doesn't do it in a way that makes them feel bad. He does it in a way that says, hey guys, I am so thankful for you. And so there's the two reasons why I'm excited to preach this passage. Because we've been swimming in the waters of partnership, and today we get to look at a passage about partnership with people that I am so thankful for, people that I am so delighted to partner with in ministry. Uh, Thank you for saying you missed us. We've missed you. And so to be back here genuinely is exciting for me, and to talk about this is really exciting because we get to work together. We get to work side by side for the gospel. And for seven weeks, we've been telling people about you in a positive way, really, trust me. And, and, and there are people, this is the cool thing, there are people in eight time zones away who today are in churches, in some cases that are very discouraging, 
And I'm sure that some of them today have expressed thanks for you because we said how encouraged we are by you. Isn't that beautiful? The little groups of people in different parts of the world encouraged because of what God's doing. So let's look at this uh, passage from verse 10. Let's go back to to 10 and and see what Paul says. It's two paragraphs, so we're going to just take it in two chunks. So first of all, verse 10 through to verse 13. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's talking about partnering. He's talking about these people who were concerned for him. When Andy started the series, he talked about partnership in the context of quarter to three on a Sunday afternoon or, or life group or kind of the, the stuff of, of local ministry. We've also mentioned a little bit, we've started to scratch the surface in recent months, this idea of, of Trinity Chippenham global ministries. We, we just kind of recognize, wow, look, God has brought people together in this church who have ministry beyond the local stuff that's going on here. And so obviously you've heard about stuff we're involved in, but you know, Mike going over to Poland and, and Turin and different places, Portland recently, uh, making a difference in people's lives who are not local to us here. We've got Tim, you heard about a few weeks ago, working with AIM, a missions organization, trying to mobilize missionaries to go to Africa. Bronwyn at Sat7 and the ministry that Sat7 has uh, across the Middle East and North Africa. We've got... Um, Andrew and Mary worked with with WEC International over these years and and publishing and all the different work that that Andrew's still working in and Mary doing different things in different settings. We've got kind of decades of of experience and connections with the Dexters working in Japan and the Mead Seniors working in Italy. We've got all these different people. I apologize if I've missed anyone. Paul and Anina. We've got Paul and Anina have been in Mexico. Are are they now in Thailand or are they still in transit at the... They're kind of getting there, a few weeks in Thailand, reconnecting and revisiting ministry that they had there. We've got David and Jenny, who, of course, it's for work rather than for official ministry, but they're still part of this body of believers in a different location, and we stay connected with Dave and Jenny in L.A., and we pray that God will use them in their setting there to be a blessing and an encouragement and to to have opportunities to share the gospel. We've got all of these kind of partnerships opportunities, if you like, within the church. And and it's not God's design for for Tim to lone ranger and do his thing and for me to lone ranger do my thing. It's God's design for us as a family to stand together and to care for one another and to have concern about each other locally and globally. And so what Paul says in these verses from verse 10 onwards is is he, he just expresses delight in that horizontal concern, right? He's just like, wow, you, you, you cared for me. You wanted to. Now you've got the opportunity. You've given again. This is such a blessing and such an encouragement. And it is, isn't it? Such an encouragement to connect with someone and to feel like you're making a difference 
in them and through them. But I think it's really helpful for us to notice that there's no sense here in which Paul is, is kind of saying thank you in order to drop a hint. You know what I mean by that? It's very easy, isn't it, to say, um, dear grandma, thank you so much for my Christmas present. I really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to getting more similar things in the future. Amen. You know, it's so easy to sort of do a thank you that's utterly self-serving. But Paul's not doing that. In verse 11, he says, I'm not speaking of being in need. Don't think that I'm asking you for more. I'm just saying genuinely my heart is blessed because you care. But then he reveals something to us that's so, so helpful. He's saying, look, horizontally, I'm, I'm overflowing with gratitude for your kindness. But my gaze is vertical. Horizontally, you give, you care, and I praise you and God for that. But my gaze, where I'm trusting, is, is in God. I'm not looking to people. In fact, in any and every circumstance, whether I've been you know, in abundance or in need, in hunger or plenty, whatever the circumstance, I have learned, that's a key phrase, I have learned the secret. He's learned how to be content. And the secret is not figuring out how to get people to give what he needs. The secret is verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And it's really important that we, we get that principle even before we go to the next paragraph because otherwise the danger is that instead of being grateful for one another and gazing on God for everything that we need, we can start gazing on one another and what we discover is that we let each other down. We can start thinking that, hang on a minute, this person could help me. Why aren't they? We've been with, with all sorts of people, but some of the people we've seen in the last few weeks have been beyond comprehension wealthy. And if I'm not careful, I can start kind of churning a bit on the inside, to be honest. I can go, hey, that person could not only fund me, but every ministry I'm connected with for decades. And I, I just can't cope with that kind of turmoil. I've got to keep my gaze on the Lord. But we all do, don't we? It's possible in your situation as you're facing a challenge to look sideways at someone in the church and say, hey, this person could give me a car, or this person could fix this, or this person could do that. And if we're not careful, we can, instead of expressing and feeling gratitude for one another, we can start becoming bitter towards one another. If you're married, you know that's true. You know how it's so easy to stop being grateful for the blessing of your spouse and to start becoming bitter because they are not meeting every possible need that you can come up with. My spouse doesn't meet all my needs, doesn't take care of me, doesn't say the right things at the right times, doesn't read my mind, all of that kind of stuff. And we can so easily go from having the blessing of a spouse or a friend and turn it into an idol that fails us because we expect them to be like God in our lives. No, we look to God. In plenty or in want, in good times, in bad times, whatever we're facing, we look to God and we say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your care. Let me just ask before we move on, how are you doing on that? How's the sort of contentedness thing going? Because according to Paul, he had to learn contentedness, not just in the tough times, 
but in the good times too. When there was plenty and when there was nothing. It's not something that's automatic. It's something that is learned over time, that we learn to trust God for every circumstance. And and if you're sat here thinking, actually, I'm kind of struggling, actually, I'm feeling bitter or I'm feeling, you know, lack of gratitude, or maybe I'm starting to expect from people, maybe I'm feeling entitled. I'm not condemning that. I'm just saying, hey, it's part of the process. It's part of the learning that God wants us to learn to fix our gaze on Him, to do all things through Him who strengthens us, while being delighted with gratitude for the blessings of each other. This is a church that cares for one another. I experienced that. I've missed that. It's special. Honestly, it's not normal. And I don't want you to feel like I'm kind of pressuring or kind of beating you down. I'm I'm praising and saying, hey, this is a privilege to be a part of this community. But one thing that could sour that is if we start to gaze on each other and say, well, he could do this. She could do that. This person could fix this. This person could take care of that. Let's keep our gaze on the Lord. He is the one that enables us and strengthens us to face every situation. So there's kind of the principle, if you like. There's the the intro to the subject of partnership. We want to be grateful to one another, but we want to be trusting in God. That's how it works. And then he goes on from verse 14 down to verse 20 and, and he really kind of drills into it a little bit more. He doesn't just talk in generic terms. He goes specific. He's actually talking about money here. This is kind of awkward, right? Talking about money. Who wants to talk about money? If you're a guest here today, please believe me when I say we do not talk about money very often. Okay? I, I think maybe there was one message at the, in January of 2016, if I'm remembering rightly. The trustees have said to us as elders, could you please say more about giving? Obviously, we've not been very obedient to that because now we're in the middle of 2018. This is not our normal subject, but the passage talks about money, so we've got to talk about it. And and so let me read it to you, and then let me show you what he says. But again, don't, don't panic because he doesn't drop a guilt bomb on them. Okay, This is encouragement rather than pressure. Verse 14 He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble or to fellowship in my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus uh, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Just, just notice what he's, basically every verse he's saying something important for us. Let's just work our way through them. Okay, uh, verse 15, let's jump in there. He's saying, look, when I left Macedonia, no other church partnered with me except you only. Notice the phrase he uses there, in giving and receiving. Partnership, even financial partnership, is and can be and should be two-way. 
giving and receiving. Now, let me just clarify. That doesn't mean the way we think of in this world, this kind of back and forth, quid pro quo, I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of an idea. We're, We're all happy with that. You go to the shop, you pay money, you receive something for it. Nobody struggles with that concept. But that's exactly not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is is generosity and it's humility in receiving. He's talking about a generosity that spills out towards others. Now, he's not literally just talking about being kind and nice and so on. And, And again, I think this church has grasped better than any church I've ever been a part of the value of words and how we speak to one another and how we can encourage each other. But, but there's something that you could say, even though it's not true here, but, but words are cheap, you know? It's easy to say words. But, but what Paul's talking about here is, is actual giving, like the proper write-a-check kind of giving. And that's kind of harder, isn't it? That costs you something. You put time in to, to work and to earn the money, and then you release it to somebody else who hasn't worked for it. That's not easy. Or you saved the money because you you could have bought this, but you bought that, or you didn't buy anything. And so either through work or through saving, you've got this this kind of fruit, the sort of the fruit of your sweat, if you like, that's converted into a piece of paper, and then it's released to somebody else. That's not easy. But it's also not easy to receive either. I suppose some people feel entitled. They feel like everybody owes them something. That's not, not helpful. Uh, it's not a, a good attitude. But, but for many, and maybe for many of us, actually it's something we struggle with. When someone reaches out and is kind to us, we, we kind of, our pride kicks in. And we, I'm not a charity case. And we kind of, do you know what I mean by that? We sort of get resistant. But, but Paul's saying, look, you're the, you're the church that joined with me in giving and receiving. There's a, a two-way sense to this. And and for us to be mature believers, we need to learn both to give and to receive. Not because we're entitled, but also not to resist it because we're proud, but just to humbly accept when someone makes a meal for you because they love you. It's not an insult. It's an expression of God's love. And it's also not trying to get something from you. It's an expression of God's love. When we're in this world, it just seems so weird, doesn't it? This world is a dog-eat-dog world. There's no such thing as a free meal. All these phrases, and we we can so easily be guarded and careful. Like, okay, if this person's going to be kind to me, then obviously they're wanting something from me, and so we can be resistant. But in God's way of thinking, in the world that God is creating through us, giving makes all the sense in His world because He's a giving God. He's a God who doesn't want a, a payment from us. He gives. And so it makes sense that we become givers too. Yesterday, Andy was uh, preaching at, at Danny and Claire's Renewal of Vows uh, service, and he was talking about Romans 5.8 and the fact that God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? God didn't say, okay, fix your life, turn over a new leaf, start contributing to the offering, and then I'll save you. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed this, we never do an offering at Trinity. That's not an accident. We haven't forgotten. We've never done it, and as far as I'm concerned, we'll never do one. Why? 
because what can happen when you have an offering in a church is that exactly the wrong people feel targeted. The regulars, the people who are part of the church, who if they're doing well spiritually should be giving, well, they just kind of ignore it because they're probably giving by direct debit anyway. And the people who are visiting and, and this thing comes past, they feel kind of obligated. And, and then what, what goes on in their minds? It, it could be the idea that, well, we've had some nice music and a, an interesting message and there's lavish refreshments and, and so I need to contribute. Here's my payment. We don't want to do that. That's not the giving and receiving that this passage is talking about. Or worse, they might think, hey, if I am a good person and if I give, then God will smile on me and be kind to me. That's not the way the gospel works. And so we've said, let's just not do it. What's the point? The offering just creates confusion. Let's make it slightly awkward to give and so only our own people will do it. You see, it's, it's all part of the, the principles here of, of we've got a generous God who gives lavishly. And because we're His, therefore we learn to give and receive. Not as a payment, not as an arrangement, but as an overflow. And so giving and receiving is the first part of this. And then verse 16, notice he says, uh, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Again, we live in a culture where people give very easily to appease conscience. See a picture of a sad-looking dog or a starving child and just give what you've got in your pocket so you can feel better and move on. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, with, with giving to things that move you. Please do that. But when we're talking about partnership in the gospel and partnership in ministry, I'm sure that I'm not the only one that can say this. I just think of the Heatons and you know, the Dexters and the Mead Seniors and the, and the Bowkers, people who have been able to do the ministry they've done in some cases for decades, that was not possible because of one-off gifts. One-off gifts were helpful, but it was people who sacrificially, continuously gave month after month for year after year or Christmas after Christmas, whatever the pattern was, there was a once and again and again persistence to the giving that has enabled ministries to happen. And we praise God for those people, just as we praise God for the, the one-offs. And so there's this giving and receiving. There's this persistent once and again sense of partnership. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Again, he's, he's underlining, I am not seeking more money from you. He's already told them, I've got all my needs met. I'm not looking for cash. It's not his self-concern. It's his concern for them. He's saying to them, look, I want you to give because when you give, there's a benefit, there's a credit, there's a fruitfulness in your life. A little while ago, I was in a church, and they'd asked me to speak about giving resources. And I said to them, that's kind of awkward, because I live based on people giving resources to help me, and some of those people are in this church, and so it's a little bit awkward. They, they didn't change their plan. They wanted me to speak on giving resources. So I, I spoke to one of the elders, and I said, tell me, you've asked me to speak on this, and I'm here as a visiting speaker. I'm here to serve you, and I'm going to speak on the subject. Help me to know what it is that, that's relevant here. It, for example, is it that you've got missionaries out there and this church is not giving and they're struggling? He said, no, that's not the case. 
He said, our, our missionaries, I think, are well, well supported. I was like, oh, praise the Lord. He said, I'll tell you what it is. It's generational. He said, the older people in the church, or at least the older believers in the church, are giving. And it's not because they're wealthier. In many cases, they're on less money than they used to have, but they're, they're big givers. But the younger generation, actually, who may be earning a whole lot more, they don't give. And it's not because of, of income. It's because of maturity. He said, it's the mature believers who know that what God has given you, you give away. That's the way that God's economy works. And so the younger Christians, as part of their maturing, need to learn to give. And I thought, that's a brilliant insight. That's why you talk to a local elder. He knows his flock. And so I was able to speak and, and hopefully kind of poke at that little issue a little bit. But I think it's a good insight for us because what Paul's saying here in verse 17 is, look, I'm not trying to get you to give to me. What I want you to get is this blessing of enjoying and engaging more and more of the Christian life, more and more of what God has for you. As you give, you benefit. Now, that's not what you hear on TV. That's not from the people who, who say, you know, if you give 100 pounds to my ministry, then you'll be blessed with 1,000 pounds from somewhere else. That's frankly disgusting because they, they benefit bizarrely from that. And I, I just wish that we could remove that from our experience. Paul's not saying here, you invest X amount, you'll get so many times it back. What he's saying here is as we give... As we spot needs and we resource and we share and we participate, we're blessed. There's a blessing for us. Melanie and I have talked about this, I think, certainly thinking about giving, that over the years of our marriage, we've given to different things. I'm not saying it's you know, a lot or anything like that. All I'm saying is this. We've never at one point, never looked back and said, we wish we hadn't given that. We've never, we've never come to pay a bill and said, oh man, if only we hadn't been generous there, we'd be okay now. Because you, you don't outgive God. Even when times are tough, even when you're struggling to pay the bills, there's a sense in which you never look back and go, if only I hadn't given, I'd be fine. And so Paul's saying this for their benefit, not for his. Look, there's a, there's a fruitfulness that, that adds up in your account when you're, you're giving money out of your account. And so you see in every verse, he's just kind of reinforcing this, this concept of generosity and kindness and giving. You know, i just make a comment before I wrap it up with the last couple of verses here. I, I've mentioned partnering and I've mentioned partnership specifically in terms of gospel ministry. I think this is a, a point that's worth considering because as you're practically applying this message and you're sitting at home with your checkbook or on your bank account, you know, on the website, whatever, however you do it, as you're considering where to give, let me just give you a, a gentle nudge. There are many needs in the world. There are many worthwhile causes. And it's okay to give to whatever you want to give to. We're not going to try and control or influence in that. But, but I do want to say this. There are a lot of good causes that a lot of other good people will give to. So you might say, well, animal welfare, yeah, fine. Animal welfare, is, it's a good thing. God wants us to take care of creation, and, and that includes animals, and cruelty to animals is horrific, and it shouldn't happen. That's an option, but there are many people who give to that. The environment, 
It's right for us to care about the environment and to be good stewards of the world we're in. But there are millions of people who will give to environmental causes. Poverty, famine, things that even disaster relief, things that we've given to as a church and will give to again. Legitimate, good needs, by all means give to them, but recognize that a lot of other people get moved by those things too. I just want to say this. Apart from Christians, who's going to give to evangelism? Who's going to give to help the church have the funds it needs for the ministry that it feels called to here? And who's going to give to to, to make a difference in Africa or Asia or wherever in terms of getting the gospel to people so that they can know Jesus? Who's going to give to help Bible translation so it gets into the language of people that don't have the Bible yet? Who's going to give to support persecuted Christians who, who need help because they're desperately struggling? The fact is only Christians give to these things. Great commission causes should be at the top of our list of priorities. Okay, just take that as a a suggestion, not as a pressure. Because when we come to the next bit here, the last kind of principle that we have in this, I, I love this. It's like in every paragraph, Paul is talking about them and their giving, and he finishes talking about God. He did it in the the first paragraph. I learned to do all things through him who strengthens me, getting my gaze on him. And now he does it again here. He's like, hey, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. You know, you've sent stuff, gifts with Epaphroditus, and I'm so blessed. But notice where he points them. He says, the gifts that you sent were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's he's, he's pointing them not to himself, but to God. He's saying that that when they gave, they were worshiping God. God. And then verse 19, since you're looking at God, don't miss this. He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How can we be generous God-type people? Not by looking at our checkbooks, not by scratching our heads and trying to force ourselves to to, to become more generous than we've been before. The way that we're going to become more mature, uh, open-handed, generous partners in the gospel here and internationally is going to come as we fix our gaze on Him. He's the one that's generous. He's the one that gives. He's the one that has glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And what does He do with that? He gives it all to us. Paul says in Romans, if God, who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God is the generous one. And as he grips our hearts, it changes our attitudes. It loosens our grip on possessions and it it changes our pride into humility and it it makes us kind of God-like in a small way. It makes us givers because we worship a giving God. And so I just want to encourage you with that. As Paul finishes his letter to the Philippians, he's not beating them down and making them guilty. He's saying, wow, look at God. Fix your gaze on him to be content in every circumstance and trust his generosity. And because he's generous, the more you get to know him, the more generous you'll be too. And the more you get to know him, the more humble you'll be. And the more you get to know him, the more you'll partner and connect. And so I'm excited about that. 
I'm excited to partner with this church, to work side by side together in the work of the gospel, and to look to God together and say, oh Lord, show us more of your glorious love so that we can be more generous with all that you've given to us.